Matthew chapter 16, one more time. Matthew 16. So, I told you this morning that I wanted to do sort of a deeper dive into one verse. And that was the last verse that we looked at this morning. So, just to put it back into perspective, look at the last two verses. This third encouragement to the disciples is that Jesus will repay them. Whatever loss that they experience, they'll be repaid by the Son of God. Whatever pain they suffer, they'll be rewarded. Whatever they spend in the cause of the Messiah will be repaid. And so he says, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Then He says, Truly, truly, I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And of course, we can see how that's an encouragement to these men. He said, I will repay you. And he said, you won't even see death until uh, before this happens. Now, this is one of three sort of time indicators that Jesus gives with regard to his coming, right? Notice he's talking about his coming in verse 27. Son of man is going to come with his angels in glory with the glory of his father. And then he says, some of you standing here will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We already saw one other time indicator about the coming of Messiah, where Jesus said back in chapter 10, in fact, you might want to jot these three down together, because they're helpful to have kind of in one place. There are probably some other similar type statements too, but these three major ones. So 1628 is one, and then you have 1023, where Jesus says, you don't have to turn back there, but you remember that Jesus said to his disciples, he sent them out on a mission to preach in in the different Israelite cities. And he said, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's another time indicator. And there's at least one more in chapter 24, verse 30, when he says, um, they will see, it's verses 30 and 34, I'm putting them together here. Jesus says to people, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So those are the three indicators, right? One, chapter 10, he says, you won't have gone throughout the cities on on your mission that I'm sending you on before you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Chapter 12, Uh, some of you standing here won't even die before you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Chapter 24, uh, you'll see the Son of Man coming in power and glory. This generation will not pass um, until these things take place. So taken together, these three passages seem to indicate that Jesus expected His coming to happen, would you say sooner or later? I would say sooner. So... And of course, that's what gives us all, makes us all scratch our heads because we're like, we're still here. Um, Jesus is not here. I don't see him anyway. So what did he mean? 
<clears throat> how do we reconcile these things with what we have seemed to experience? So I want to just try to give you my best help, uh, which may or may not be worth too much, but I'll give it my best shot here this afternoon, okay? Um, so let me give you some options in, in terms of, these aren't, this is not by any means exhaustive in terms of how people explain this, but I'll give you some, a taste of some different explanations. One is, of course, that Jesus was just mistaken. <clears throat> and this is the position taken by skeptics and liberals, people who don't believe the Bible, who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, in fact, Bertrand Russell, you probably have heard the name, even if you're not super familiar, famous skeptic, actually cited some of these, at least two or maybe all three of these very texts in Matthew as proof that Jesus was mistaken in his thinking and his conception of when he would return. I'm really not going to deal with that one too much because my commitment to Christ just doesn't allow me to, to uh, engage with that in, in terms of as a reasonable option. And I'm, I am imagining that I'm talking to people who are pretty like-minded on that. But let me move to the second one. And that is some people explain it by saying <clears throat> that um, Jesus wasn't really saying that his coming would take place soon at all. And the explanation here goes along the lines of taking each passage individually, each one of these three texts, and tr um, explaining them in such a way that does not indicate that Jesus was talking about his coming being soon. I'll just give you, give you the, way, the way the explanation runs. So, for example, here, let's just start with this one in 16, when he says, <clears throat> some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming. Um, sometimes, so this explanation will say that, um, that what Jesus was talking about here was, was solely his transfiguration, which will happen in the next chapter when they will see the Son of Man you know, glorified, and some of those standing there would not die until that takes place. Um, to me, it's, it does seem a little bit strange that Jesus would say it the way he did when it's going to happen in just a few days. Some of you standing here will not die until this happens. Well, they're all going to, none of them are going to die. Of course, not all of them will see it. And I, and I will say this, I do think that the transfiguration is a preview of the coming of the Son of Man and his power and glory. And so we'll talk about that when we come to chapter 17. But... So the explanation is, you know, Jesus. what Jesus said made sense. They, it would just be a few days and they would see him. And then the second passage, the one back in chapter 10, I'm sorry, let me jump to the, to the third one, the one in chapter 24, when Jesus said, this generation um, <clears throat> will not pass away until these things take place. We're talking about his coming. And they, this explanation would say that when he says this generation, that he means a future generation, that would experience the things that he's talking about, that that generation would not pass away until um, all those things take place. So it'll happen, when it does start to happen, it'll happen um, in a short space of time. Which doesn't seem to me, at least, the, the natural way of understanding Jesus standing there looking at people saying, this generation will not pass away um, until these things happen. But that is an explanation. Um, given by um, 
a lot of people. And then the third passage would be this one. I'm sorry, the third passage would be the one back in chapter 10. And to me, that's the hardest to sort of get your mind around how you explain that one. Because remember, Jesus said, you won't have finished going through all of these towns where I'm sending you to preach until you'll see the Son of Man coming. And of course, they are long dead now, those guys that he sent out. Um, their mission is definitely finished, uh, and, and yet we still haven't seen the Lord. So it, these, are, these are not impossible interpretations. I just think that they seem to be unnecessary expedients that have to sort of stretch the language. Forgive me if I'm losing you. I'll try to, try to bring it to a point here at some point that might help. Um, the third explanation of these texts is this, and, and that is that God delayed his son's coming. So Jesus gave the initial plan, as it were, which is that <clears throat> the Son of Man would come again very soon, within a generation, but that that plan has been delayed. And of course, that idea of delay itself is an accommodation to us. God's, you know, nothing changes for God. God's not a responder. He's the actor in this world. But he speaks to us. He condescends to us in, in terms of speaking about responding to us. So, like, um, and the illustration that's given, typically, in this view, is the illustration that Jonah preached a message of God's judgment coming upon Nineveh. He said how many, how, when he gave a time indication too, right? He said in... Forty days, I'll bring judgment upon Nineveh. Um, but Nineveh repented, and so what did God do? God, the Bible says God relented of the judgment. Again, accommodation language, but God sort of changed his plan, as it were, <clears throat> in response to the changeable hearts of, of the people. And so the argument goes that the coming of Jesus, the second coming, has been delayed, even though it was originally planned, so to speak, in, as to come within a generation, but it's been delayed for all of these years now to give people more time to repent, as Second Peter chapter 3 says, God is not slow to bring about His promise of Christ's return, but He is patient toward us. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 18 has it just as a standing rule that God gives that he reserves the possibility to change course in, again, accommodation language, in response to people. And so in some prophecies, a sort of a condition is replied. God says, if I pronounce judgment, but the people repent, then I might relent of that judgment. Or if I pronounce blessing, but the people don't um, obey, then I might withhold the blessing. So even though he pronounced it. So this argument is that God planned the coming of Christ, but has now changed that plan and delayed that plan so that Christ was right in what he said, but the things are, are different now. Um, the difficulty with that one to me um, seems to be that while some preliminary judgments are postponed in the Bible, like Nineveh, uh, when repentance comes. This judgment is categorically different, the second coming I'm talking about, um, in that it is final and decisive. This is a major epical event in human history 
the likes of which seem more akin to the first coming of Jesus Christ, which happened, the Bible says, in the fullness of time. God had a, an hour that was appointed for his son to die. It was the timing predicted even in the Old Testament uh, prophecies. So, so that this seems to be much more of a, a bookending sort of major epical event like that. And I doubt this is the right, this is a reason, this is a way to really understand what this is saying. Which all brings me to what I think is a better solution, at least the best one to my mind, and I'll just give you that. So this is Bray eschatology today. You can take it for what it's worth. <clears throat> this one, I think, remembers that Jesus' language, and in fact, so much of the language of the New Testament, is rooted in and relies on the Old Testament. And it's an argument that I began to make back when we looked at the passage in chapter 10. I want to just kind of revive that argument and expand it a little bit, and then maybe we'll revisit it when I get to 24, 23, 24, 25, and figure out what those are saying. <laughs> so, um, only teasing slightly. Um, but this is an argument that I made back in chapter 10, and I want to enlarge on it a bit. The key phrase <clears throat> in this text, in all three of these texts, is this, that the Son of Man comes, or the Son of Man is coming. And notice that in that phrase, there is, and there are other important elements too, but that's the core of it. There's an important subject and an important verb. The subject is the Son of Man, and the verb is comes. All right, so we're going to take each one of those for a minute and, and look at them. In fact, both of those are used in every single time reference including one more that I'll point out in a few minutes that are in the book of Matthew. So, first the subject, son of, son of man. And uh, that phrase, the son of man, should point us, if we're Old Testament savvy, it should point us to a key passage, a key Old Testament concept that we've looked at several times. It comes from one particular Old Testament book where this language is used in a really... Um, dramatic way, and it is the book of what? Daniel chapter. All right. Yay. Y'all remember Daniel 7. So I think Daniel 7 is the conditioning text. It's the key conditioning text to understanding a lot of Jesus' use of the Son of Man language. It's not the only background for Son of Man, but I think it's key. And of course, you remember the context, and I won't probably have us turn there um, just you know, so we don't get too long. But the, the, the account is this vision that Daniel sees of the ancient of days. And this, it, it really, the vision is one of the convening of a royal court. You know, picture a great medieval king on his throne and all of his courtiers are up there. Courtiers, how do you say that? All of his people, all of his buds, they're up there. All of his knights. All of the you know great men of the realm are invited to this great hall for this royal um, gathering, and so it's a royal court. The throne's set up, the entourage is gathered, and there is someone like a man who is brought in to be presented at court. A man comes to the throne of heaven, one like a son of man, and yet he's like. <laughs> a son of man who rides on the clouds like God himself. He comes in clouds with power and glory. 
you know, God is spoken of as the one who rides the cloud. So, so here's a man, but who is yet exalted, who is brought into the very throne room of heaven, who is presented at court. He comes before the Ancient of Days, God on his throne, and he is given eternal authority over all men. And Christ, in appropriating that language, the Son of Man is saying, that was me in that prophecy. That's talking about me. I am the Son of Man who, because of my perfect obedience, have been exalted among men to take the place as head of a new humanity to have all of the nations of the world um, as my inheritance. And so that's the, that's the noun, or that's the, the subject. The verb, of course, is that the Son of Man comes, or the Son of Man is coming. You will see the Son of Man coming again and again, these texts say. And I think when we hear that, we're conditioned just in our sort of modern mindset of waiting for Jesus to return, we're conditioned to think that that's what it's talking about. That it's when Jesus, anytime he talked about the Son of Man coming, that it's a reference to what we would call the second coming or uh, the, the Greek word oftentimes used is parousia. Some of you have heard that. The parousia. That's the coming of Christ to earth to be manifest, to be visible at the end of time. That will happen. We're not at the end yet. Okay, That's still coming. But we're conditioned to think of that every time we hear this idea that the Son of Man is coming. And I'm not sure that that's the right way to think. In fact, I think our, our thinking about that terminology should be conditioned by this whole scene being played out in the book of Daniel. So what, what do you see in Daniel? What's going on there? Daniel chapter 7.13 is the key, and it says this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So where is the son of man coming? He's coming to heaven. He's coming to God. He's coming before the throne of glory. This is language of royal presentation. Behold, He comes. Open the big doors at the back of the hall and in He walks. And He's being presented. He's coming into His own. He's coming to the royal coronation. Here He comes. You can just imagine the coronations that you've seen in Westminster Abbey, you know, and the bum, 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 oh, whatever they play. And the, you know, the person's walking down and I promise to be your loyal liege for time and eternity or whatever they say. I don't know. And, and it's that kind of thing. This is the coming that's in view in Daniel. So that the coming is not just a prosaic going from one location to another. It's a coming that is a royal presentation of being presented at court. In other words, this language of the Son of Man's coming with clouds in glory, and we see His glory. This is the language of Christ's exaltation, the language of His coronation, the language of His enthronement, the language of His glorification. That, I think, does tri pays tribute to the Old Testament background which is so much, um, so central to understanding so much of the New Testament. So that's how I've understood it. Now, 
Um, I'm going to try to put together now in a little bit of a graphic because I like charts and it's just kind of fun to do sometimes. At least for me and my brain, it kind of works better that way. So Jesus' redemptive work has two distinct stages, right? Some of you could probably already say, Jesus, not talking about his eternity, but his redemptive work has two distinct stages. You might already guess what they are. Uh, let's see if I can... Okay, so here, here's his redemptive work, all right? Incarnation, earthly life, sufferings, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, his session. So let me explain the incarnation we know, earthly life we get, suffering, all of his sufferings through this life, of course, culminating in his sufferings that led to his death, his burial, of course, his resurrection, we understand, his ascension, when he goes up on the mountain and he, he, he goes up into the air and he's obscured from their sight. His enthronement, the Bible says he is taken up into heaven and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? He sits down on his throne. He rules and reigns now. And his session, this is a word that, again, has to do with being seated in a royal capacity, um, this is his rule and reign throughout all of the present era. The Bible says he's, he's continuing to reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And then in the end is the parousia. This is his, his glorious appearing, his revelation, the second coming, you know, different ways to talk about it. When all of history comes to an end, um, he brings a judgment upon the world and, and we enter into eternity. This is the work of Jesus, right? The redemptive work of Christ. As I said, there are two distinct stages to it, and you can call these stages by different things. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible um, distinguishes two stages by talking about Christ's descent from heaven all the way down into the lower parts of the earth and his ascent back up into heaven. So that's one way to talk about the two different aspects of the... Um, of the redemptive work of Christ, or another way is the way that's talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 24, when the Bible talks about, first of all, his suffering, and then his glory. Jesus said that um, he should, that the Messiah should suffer and then go into glory. Peter says, the scriptures told us Messiah first suffered and then subsequently entered into glory. So those are two ways to talk about it. Or a third way to talk about it is the way that Philippians chapter 2 does, when it says that on the one hand, Christ became uh, obedient, he became a servant, he humbled himself, right? So there's one, his humiliation. And then because of what he's done, God has highly, what? Exalted him, given him a name that is above every name. He's lifted him up into heaven, he's seated him on his own throne. So there is, on the other hand, exaltation. So these are the two distinct stages of the, of the redemptive work of Christ, his descent his, and his ascent, his suffering and glory, his humiliation and exaltation. Um, so then, now we come to the language in our text. You will see the Son of Man coming in his glory with clouds of glory, right? All of this kind of language that's borrowed from Daniel. What is Daniel talking about? Where in this, in this sort of spectrum of what, what, so I think he's talking about this. I think he's talking about, and that does not show up at all, does it? You want to hit the lights real quick? I, I think I can. 
Oh, you still can't read it. Well, that's what you get for putting it in red. Maybe you can see it. It says, coming in his kingdom or in his glory, compare with Daniel chapter 7. This is a reference to his glory, to his ascent, to his exaltation, to this whole period between his first and second coming, and especially having its epicenter in his heavenly enthronement. His heavenly enthronement. Now, Jesus is going to be a king, and it's going to be visible on this whole world someday. But right now, he's enthroned in heaven. And when Daniel says, this is, this is uh, he shows us this vision, I think this is what he's referring to. Um, it is Christ enjoying his rightful glory as the perfectly obedient Son of Man. Now, having said that, let me say that you can divide it just a little bit more. And that there are two phases of Christ's kingdom. Is Jesus the king? Answer is yes. Is he ruling on his throne now? Is he a king now? Does he have a kingdom? Well, maybe some people might say, no, a kingdom is all for future. But I think, by and large, most of us would say, yes, he is ruling, he's the king, but yet we're still praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so I say that there are two phases to Christ's kingdom. There is what sometimes people call the already phase, the part we already experience, and there is the not yet. This is just kind of a, an old way of talking about these two sort of phases. Or I might, I might like to use these kinds of terms. There is his kingdom that is an invisible reign, and then there is his visible reign. Now, those might be misleading. We don't mean that Jesus' reign right now can never be seen. It is made visible as his people live out their subservience to his lordship all over the world. But by and large, Christ's rule and reign is invisible to most of the world. Most of the world does not believe that he's the king. He's invisible. He, he ascended up into their, out of their sight, into the clouds. They believed, the disciples believed that he sat down on the throne of God, but, but to most people it was invisible. He is ruling and reigning right now, but he's not visible to us. His reign on earth is not visible um, in its full sense that it will be one day. So I think those are the two phases of Christ's kingdom. And you can see I've marked it. The, the parousia is, the, is when it will be visible. That's the, what's not yet for us. Okay? But the rest of it is already. That's where he is ruling and reigning. He is enthroned in heaven. Now, uh, there are three terms that are used in the Bible for the visible phase of Christ's kingdom in the New Testament. Three terms. Or, if you want to say it another way, three terms for what you might call the second coming of Christ or the... Whatever. Well, I'll give you the terms and I'll quit saying them. Uh, the first one is the term that's often translated coming. It's the word parousia. Now, it's not the same word that's being used in Matthew here. Okay, This is a different word that Jesus is using in Matthew 16. In chapter 10, in chapter 16, and in chapter 24, all of them are a different word, not parousia. Jesus is talking about his coming to be enthroned in heaven. But when we talk about the visible coming in the end, that's the parousia. 
That's used 17 times in the Bible. It's a word that, that has to do with the presence of Jesus. And of course he's present with us now. But his presence in a way that is beyond dispute. Uh, he is personally, bodily, visibly, visibly present in our midst in this world. So that's one word. A second word to talk about that visible part, the second coming of Jesus, is the word appearing. We're waiting for his glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word, um, if you want the Greek word, pephaneia, from what, where we get our English word, epiphany, right? A sudden manifestation. And that's what it'll be like when Jesus comes. He will... Jesus is ruling now, but his reign is invisible. But one day, it's going to be like a sudden realization. The whole world will be like, Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. It'll be an epiphany, as it were, and a sudden manifestation of his reign. The third word is perhaps the most descriptive, and it is the word revelation. Apocalypsis is the Greek word. Revelation. We're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is used 12 times of the coming of Christ visibly in the end. And this word, revelation, has to do with an uncovering or an unveiling. We have all seen or read something about Superman. And his real name is, I mean, his fake name. I don't know, his human name? Is that He's a human. I don't know what he is. I'm not a star... Star Wars. I'm not a Superman reader, but you know, he's Clark Kent by day, wearing the glasses and all that. And then, but he's always Superman. He doesn't like become Superman. He's always got these powers. They're just hidden, they're veiled. And then, you know, when trouble comes, he goes in the phone booth and he rips off his shirt, and all of a sudden, who he really is is unveiled. And that's the kind of terminology that's used here. Christ is right now seated on his throne. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Make no doubt about it. He is ruling and reigning this world. in this world. Um, his reign is not yet fully manifest, and, it, and, he, and he certainly is not yet revealed in all of his glory to be, who he re, to, to be seen to be who he really is, which is the great king. But in the end, in the end, he will be revealed. So we're waiting for that. Now, his disciples would not clearly see Christ reigning as king from heaven. He was taken away from their sight. But Jesus said, you don't have to wait until his reign is visible in the end. You don't have to wait until his reign is visible to know that he is enthroned in heaven. He said, and I will give you signs that I am coming in my glory and see being seated on the throne of heaven. And what are those signs? Well, there they are. Um, I think they are these, that the Israelite cities will hear and reject the gospel that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, that the Holy Spirit will come in might and power at Pentecost, and then upon the Samaritans and upon the Gentiles throughout the book of Acts, and that the gospel will begin to go to all of the nations, the Gentiles. The Gentile mission will get going in earnest. All of these are manifestations. 
all of these are like signs to them to confirm that, the, that Christ has come, that He is on His throne, that He is ruling and reigning, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I think that's what is being unpacked in some sense throughout the book of Matthew. Now, by these things they will know that their Savior is reigning from heaven. And Jesus says to them then, some of you will live to see these things. It'll happen. Within a generation, you'll know that the Son of Man, He's on His throne. And there's no doubt about it. So the coming of Jesus that's mentioned in chapters 10, 16, and 24, not the word parousia, but the word that, in fact, the very word that Daniel uses in the Greek translation, it is the royal presentation of Christ, His enthronement into heaven, His entrance into glory, though not yet visible to them. And I think that interpretation in my view, is borne out in another use of this phraseology. And we're almost done. If you're just totally lost, that's okay. Um, but, you know, come in and, and, we'll, and I'll try to, to bring it to a close. So um, I think that usage is borne out in one other use in, in Matthew chapter 26. So here's one more use of this. This is at Jesus' trial. And... Jesus is being questioned by the, uh, I think this is the uh, Jewish trial, if I remember right. And Jesus says to them, listen to this, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When will they see this coming? From now on. That seems like a strange way to talk about when Jesus is going to come. From now on? From now on, I will be coming. I will be seated. I will be enthroned. I will be everything that Daniel prophesied. That's what will be true of me from now on. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's no wonder that they said, this man has spoken blasphemy. We don't, we don't even need any more witnesses. Let him be crucified. He is claiming to be this exalted son of man, the Messiah, and really on par with God himself. And... Uh, Let's see, did I put that on here? Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's the verse. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, you have all these elements. You have seeing, you have Son of Man, you have um, uh, clouds and so forth. And then one other passage that I think just sort of, in my mind, corroborates it, and that is 1 Corinthians 15.25, where it's talking about Jesus' exaltation, Particularly, Paul's talking about his resurrection, which is a part of this whole exaltation scheme, his resurrection, ascension, enthronement. And he says that he must reign. Is Jesus reigning? Paul thinks he is, I think. He must reign as he is reigning until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. In other words, his reign is going on right now. It's the invisible time, uh, uh, phase of his reign until the visible phase when finally all enemies are completely abolished. And Paul says, the last enemy that is to be done away with is death. And when death is done away with, when we enter into our immortal bodies, when we're raised again, when we have the inheritance that we're waiting for, then comes the end, when he commits the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. So, what does this mean for us? Uh, oh, by the way, I guess I got one more verse here. Jesus is not yet fully visible, manifest, revealed 
that glorious coming. Um, And here's a verse that highlights that. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Even though the Bible says he's on his throne, everything's in theoretically, you know, as if it's already done, it's he's he's the ruling overall. We but we don't yet see it, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And then Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying there. So here's what it means for them and what it means for us. And then we're done. For the disciples who heard it, it meant that in times of tribulation and suffering and persecution, which Jesus just said you're going to have, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die. In those times, they, sh- they could know that the Savior is reigning, that He's ruling, that He's on His throne, that even now He is presented in glory to the Father and nothing is outside His control, and that one day His reign will be visible, undisputed, He will return, reward, vindicate. And so, be of good courage. Then the cross will become a crown in that day. Now that's my understanding, my best understanding of this passage. All right?